Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by Data Guidance by OneTrust in association with Hogan Lovers. Welcome to the first episode of That Privacy Podcast. I'm delighted to be sat here in a lovely office in central London with Eduardo Usteran, who's partner and co-director of the Global Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Hogan Lovells. Thank and you. to my left, I've also got Alexis Katafidis, who's Global Privacy Director at Data Guidance. Hey, everyone. So my name is David Longford, uh, CEO of, of Data Guidance, and here we are. We're about to start on this great uh, initiative, which is to do a series of really kind of enjoyable, informative podcasts, quite light for, for privacy professionals everywhere, just to get a feel for how we see the world of privacy changing, uh, some of the themes that we, we see in our respective uh, organisations. Um, and a bit of a, uh, a look at what could be happening in the next few months. We've obviously got a lot of really big, important issues at the moment. Today we're going to be discussing uh, GDPR enforcement, we've got Brexit, we've got uh, some really interesting thoughts on the direction of our relationship with data generally and how the world is changing. Um, so a lot of <laughs> big, big ticket items to discuss, but hopefully it's, it's going to be nice to discuss it in a relaxed environment and just throw some ideas around. Absolutely. I think that's what this podcast is hopefully all about. So, uh, Alexis, let's just go to you. How did sure. the idea for this podcast come about and um, why are we here? <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it really came around from our discussions with Eduardo about relaunching the uh, Data Protection Leader magazine, which is out now. Um, you can download it on the Data Guidance website um, and get free copies, hopefully, in the post. Um, it's something we've been doing with Eduardo for 15 years. Yeah, at least 15 years, yeah. <laughs> a long time. Um, and, you know, we've always been a part of that conversation, whether in print or through the platform. Um, you know, we've done a whole load of webinars together as well, which, you know, are great to pick up those really timely uh, developments as and when they occur. And hopefully, you know, the idea of the podcast came around to say, okay, well, you know, it's great to have these contemporary issues coming through in print and, you know, let's get together and have a discussion because we're, we often find ourselves at your offices, Eduardo, and we're <laughs> chatting away. So um, why not put it on record and, and see what happens? And see what happens. <laughs> so here we are. Um, and that's really where we're at today. Yeah. And I think the only other thing to add is that we find when we're talking to privacy professionals, Generally, if I could generalize a little bit, privacy professionals are people who are intensely interested in their jobs and the way the world is changing. So they, there's a very kind of blurry line in between, in a, in a good way, between the, the personal and the professional. So we're, we're talking about privacy, but hopefully this is what we're talking about is, is kind of life and how, how our lives are changing, um, as well as the, the legal and the regulatory. Um, yeah. Great. Okay. So um, to kick off, I think we've got a, a small list of topics to, to rack through. Yeah. Um, what are we going to look at first, Lexus? Yeah, I mean, uh, so just to kind of put it in context, as David was saying, we're here in London, sunny London today for a March day. March 11th is where we're at. Um, lots of things happening this week, a big week for the UK um, in terms of Brexit. Um, I think that's probably the best place to start by the time you all listen to this podcast. Maybe there's a few different things that have happened but I think it's important to set the scene for where we are today, Eduardo. Um, 
I mean, we were just having a quick catch up. You were letting us know what the kind of order of play is for this week. Um, where are we? What's going on with Brexit? Yes, well, Brexit is um, quite a development, although we don't even know whether it, it is happening. It, it is meant to be happening by the end of this month after what is almost three years now since the, this became the number one topic in the UK. And I think this week is certainly will be part of history because tomorrow the parliament will decide whether to go for the deal that the UK government has negotiated with the EU or not. So that's the deal on the table. If, if there is an agreement by parliament, then that's it. Brexit will be happening with a deal, which sounds kind of very... Um, so no, uh, sensible, perhaps. <laughs> okay. if, you, if you have to have, if you have to have deal, uh, uh, Brexit, then maybe it's always better to have a deal. But if the if that deal is rejected, the following day there will be another equally important vote uh, asking the Parliament whether, therefore, they would prefer to have a no deal Brexit. And it'll be interesting to see whether. The, the vote on, on Wednesday uh, goes in favor of no deal, because if it goes against no deal, then we, what we will know then is that the parliament doesn't want a deal, or at least that deal, but it doesn't want a no deal. So therefore, it must want something else. And then that will probably lead to another vote on Thursday about whether the parliament wants to, wants to extend in what is called the Article 50, that is to to delay Brexit, essentially. But I think for, for our purposes, in our little data protection world, what is really important is to appreciate the significance of what is going on. And the significance of what's going on is that if Brexit does happen, and I guess it's more likely than not that it will happen, but if it happens without a deal that retain much of the status quo that we have today, then the changes are going to be substantial. And after so many years of the UK data protection law being aligned with the European Union, we're talking of more than two decades, then we will find ourselves in a very awkward situation. And I think that's what I think is, is of interest, scary, and, and I think it needs a lot of thinking. And where does that leave? I mean, there's been a lot of different authorities that have been coming out and providing, you know, small pieces of guidance, you know, uh, in the event of a deal or a no deal. I think recently also the European Data Protection Board came out um, and provided their thoughts in relation to uh, BCRs as well. What, what exactly were, were they saying in that respect? So what has become clear in my mind is that either obviously staying as part of the EU or living with a deal would be pretty much business as usual. So we, uh, the deal on the table from a data protection perspective is, doesn't really change things from, from where we are today. What really changes things is the no deal. It's the sort of slamming the door, saying to the EU, we couldn't agree how to depart the EU. We, just, we know we're living and let's hope for the best and that's it. And if we find ourselves in that situation, then 
that is very dramatic from a data protection point of view because suddenly the UK would find itself breaking with this tradition we're talking about of European data protection law, even though the law itself mirrors, as we know, European data protection law, but it would find itself outside the system, the system of joint enforcement, the system of joint uh, data flows regime, the system of uh, joining forces in terms of the regulatory supervision. So the idea of the UK suddenly becoming like the US or China or India, you know, are, are completely outside that system of regulatory supervision, that would be a, a, a big deal in practice. And, and let's just dig into that a little bit further. So, as you said, the, the law itself doesn't change if we have no deal. We still have the Data Protection Act. But So what, when you talk about breaking outside of the European tradition, what, what does that mean in practical terms for companies or what could it mean even for, for people? And if we've still got the same law, what changes would be, would be yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. The thing is you need to look at the trajectory of European data protection law. You know, it started in the early 90s precisely because the early, the very early data protection laws in the 80s uh, and early 90s were quite disjointed. So the process has started to try to harmonize that. The directive, the old 95 directive, achieved an element of harmonization compared mm-hmm. to what it was before. But it is with the GDPR, as kind of revolutionary in a way uh, as it is, that that harmonization is truly happening, I think. And that means that for all the EU member states, data protection law becomes, as I said, a system, a regulatory system where just the laws are not only the laws are the same at at a national level, but the way of thinking, the way of interpreting the law, the way in which Indeed, the European Court of Justice has been so influential in interpreting this law. That is consolidating today, and and we're going to see more and more consolidation. So one jurisdiction getting out of that system is is going to be very noticeable for that country. And we will will see that. We will see that if, if... no deal happens. I mean, I'm not trying to be dramatic about it. I mean, it's just the way it is, and it's a political situation that has repercussions from that perspective. How could you see, or is it you know, so early we're just speculating, but how could you see the ICO's you know, uh, structure or growth plans or how the ICO is as a regulator changing if we end up in that situation? So I think the ICO is such a strong regulator as in, in this in this area that is going to continue to be influential I would I would think and it's going to continue to to be a powerful regulator within this area but I have to say it must have been very frustrating for for Elizabeth then when, when when she joined the as information commissioner to think that of course her office was going to be part of of the new system, or they call it the whole um, consistency mechanism, the one-stop shop, all that, and obviously influence the way in which data protection law is regulated in Europe by being part, perhaps a leading part of that, and suddenly finding ourselves that 
we are outside the, the, the club. We cannot play the game anymore. And, and I think it's, it's I'm sure, a challenge, it's been challenging for the Information Commissioner's Office. I mean, the Information Commissioner's Office has been very creative in, in the mm-hmm. past few years, coming up with new positions, new ideas. It's been a powerful regulator in terms of enforcement. Uh, it's carried out this um, investigation into the use of data for political purposes, which is paramount in the in the world right now. So it, it, it's a strong regulator. It will continue to be a strong regulator, but it is a shame uh, if it's not able to contribute to what is, in fact, the most, I guess, I guess prestigious club of data protection regulators that exist. And that that may well be the case. Right. And, you know, that's something I guess we'll talk about a little bit later on. But effectively, you know, like you say, they don't have a seat at the European Data Protection Board table anymore, uh, which is uh, a shame in a lot of ways. As you say, I mean, uh, they've provided a lot of guidance. They've worked with the article. Previously, the Article 29 Working Party led a lot of their guidelines, initiatives, um, So I'm sure, as you say, they'll be a little bit frustrated by that. But it is quite an age, um, I guess, that we're living in, which kind of brings me to the, well, the title for this podcast, um, based off your editorial, Eduardo, for a data protection leader of this age of privacy that we find ourselves in today. You know, it's, it's Brexit, it's the European Data Protection Board, it's the GDPR, it's all of these sorts of things, you know. Um, and just I pulled a little bit, uh, I pulled a quote uh, here from, you know, one of your opening lines to the editorial that, uh, you know, one could be forgiven for thinking that preserving our privacy in the digital age and protecting our personal information in a technology-driven world is a lost battle. Everyday headlines remind us of how little we know about the uses made of our information and how vulnerable we are to its misuse. And through this, you say that we, you know, we're entering this new age of privacy. And I guess, what, what do you mean by that? What is yeah. this age? What does it mean for, for individuals, for businesses that we work for, for the regulators? Um, tell us more about it. Yeah, I think what it is mainly is a message of optimism, if, 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 if I may. But let, let me elaborate on that. It is true what you said, that you, know, you look at what is going on in terms of developments and use of data. And you know, I come across, on say on Twitter, for example, all these stories, all these complaints that people have and all this outrage that exists about how our data is being exploited and all that. And yes, you, if you are pessimistic about it, you're thinking, well, that's it, we've, we've lost it. You know, the idea of, uh, of privacy in the 21st century where everything is digitally observed sure. then uh, is gone. But, and, and, you could say that. Story, right? You could say that, but I, I actually think that the opposite is true. And is and again, that's that's not a bad thing. The, the fact that um, we we need to adapt. I think the, the the point that I was trying to to make with that uh, editorial article was to say there are signs out there of how things are changing and how things are adapting. And we've got 
powerful regulators, we have influential courts, we have uh, thought leaders, we've got people who care about these issues. And therefore, whilst on the one hand we see, we see stories about information being misused, being manipulated, and so on, and that can be also exaggerated perhaps a bit, um, we, uh, I think that there is still a very powerful movement out there. And look, I see it and you guys see it, I'm sure, with professionals out there that are working really hard to ensure that their organizations and their um, uh, whoever they work with look at this and they make the, the idea of doing business and living a digital life today compatible with the idea of privacy and data protection. And I think that's still possible. What, what I'm reminded of when you're talking about it is, um, I think it was in the early 2000s, one of the first boom tech booms, the CEO of one of the big companies, Sun Microsystems, said privacy is dead in some tech conference or something like that. And it really, you know, it was quite a divisive statement. I and mean, a lot of people thought along that line or, you know, kind of agree with it. And then I think the privacy community was just growing and growing in those early years, of early 2000s. And, and when you're talking, you can, you, it, it's just like today, you can look at it two very different ways. I mean, there's so much evidence that this is an age of privacy and everything you've just described in terms of we have strong courts, at least in, in many countries in Europe and a few around the world. Um, we have um, laws like the GDPR, we have trends like CCPA, perhaps starting trends over in, in, the, in, the, in the American region. Um, we have privacy professionals all over the world doing really important work. We have Tim Cook in Brussels last yes, October speaking about how yeah. um, you know, privacy uh, is kind of the future for, their, for Apple. On the other hand, you see the opposite in our everyday lives. So it reminds me of that kind of split yeah. between what we see if we look this way and what we see if we, we look another way. Because the thing is, uh, privacy is not that, it's evolving. You see, it's, I think it's evolving. Yeah. If you look at privacy as the, as in a very simple way of saying, well, people should, should know everything that is happening to their data and have full control over that. Well, maybe that kind of privacy is very difficult to achieve because we live in such a sort of busy and frantic world that for us to be able to stop and comprehend what is happening with our information and consciously decide how our information is shared or used or controlled that is actually very, very difficult because we just want to get on with the use of technology and and, and in fact technology has evolved in, in such a way that it relies on our information in order to develop. So I, I get that. But privacy is much more than that. You know, that, that idea of notice and consent is a very sort of 90s right. way of, of looking mm-hmm. at privacy. And I'm not saying, by the way, that people should not have a, a, a say and people should not have truth. In fact, in my um, article, I mentioned, at least in passing, that we should also be a bit more responsible as individuals, we seem to care little. And in, in you were in the situation of the, uh, that statement that was made uh, those years ago by the uh, Sun Microsystem CEO was very much along the lines of people don't care. Privacy is that because people don't care. And there is an element of truth in, in that, that people um, 
don't pay much attention or not people don't pay as much attention as we should perhaps and so we are also guilty but it's not about who is responsible who is guilty it's about how the information and how our our lives our digital lives are really protected and i think this is what i see is evolving and this is what i see is not going to be lost because again the laws the regulators the policy makers are actually taking very important steps today to ensure that that is not lost. Right. And I guess that most evidently highlighted through, as you were saying, you know, the GDPR. I mean, it's one thing that we can't uh, have a conversation today and open up our inaugural uh, podcast without talking about the GDPR in some way. And I guess what timing when we talk about this new age that we find ourselves in, this, this hyper-connected world, as you were uh, discussing in your piece, David, you know, combined with the regulation, the courts, um, and the regulators themselves. And, you know, over the past month, you know, we've seen Canil come out um, and, you know, utilize their uh, new enforcement powers under the GDPR to issue Google a 50 million euro sanction. Um, and obviously there's a lot that we can probably unpack with that decision, but I guess, uh, you know, from one thing that I would like to, to start with is um, how we kind of um, frame what is actually the subject matter of that enforcement decision. You know, if we uh, leave alone who was fined Let's concentrate on the subject matter itself as to what exactly Kinil had to say about the way uh, organizations should be looking at GDPR compliance. Sure. I mean, I think that decision by the Kinil is very symbolic in a way. It's symbolic for, for a number of reasons. One, because it, it, it is the first step that a data protection authority has taken after the GDPR to enforce the law with with a fine, with a with a serious fine. And it happened within less than a year of the GDPR becoming effective. Right. And I think we haven't seen anything yet in terms of where this is going to go. Not, not this particular case, but in general, where regulators are going with their enforcement powers. But looking at that decision, what is really interesting, and the reason why I say it's symbolic, is because it, it addresses three, from memory, three fundamental aspects of the GDPR. The competence of the data protection authorities, transparency, which again is like at the, at the core of what data protection is or has been, and, and consent which again is another uh, pillar. And interestingly, here, we've, here we are, we find ourselves, after all these years, it's still an authority looking at these very, very basic elements of transparency and right. consent. And I can assure you that this is not going to be the end of it. And I, I think that this idea of transparency, consent, lawful grounds, all this stuff, which is so basic, you would think, why wouldn't get this one right? It's been around since the day of the directive. You know, it's not something that, it's not like 
and of data protection by design, which right. is new. How do we do that? No, notice and consent. Come on, this is this is eighties or at least nineties stuff, and we are looking at this as if it was the first time, and it shows how difficult the law is, how difficult it is to get this one right, and these companies that are spending literally millions in, in, in trying to address these regulatory issues that they face. And, you know, you would think that anyone can write a privacy notice and certainly Google can write a privacy notice. And why is this being challenged? It's being challenged because, it's, it, again, it's difficult and it's fundamental. And regulators are, try, are also testing the waters as, every, as is everyone else. Uh, so that's um, why I'm saying that this decision is symbolic and we will see over the next few months and possibly years how these issues, these basic issues evolve. Right. And uh, do you think, you know, as you were saying, you know, in terms of that new, as if we were looking at it for the first time, I think that's a really interesting point considering we've been talking about these issues, as you say, since, you know, uh, 80s and 90s um, and probably before also um, so do you think that's as a result of where we are in this kind of new age in terms of technology that it's just due to the rapid development of technology and digitalization that you know we're kind of re-examining the same things we've been looking at you know just in a different the lens is the technology itself. Well, te- technology and the evolution of technology is obviously uh, a testing ground for all of this. And it is obvious, I think, to, to everyone that the way in which we use technology is such that we are very visible. Our lives are very visible. Because when you use technology, everything is recorded. Right. And mm-hmm. particularly the internet has evolved in such a way that is so accurate are recording the way in which we behave are not just accurate, it's so comprehensive. We use the internet for everything, for everything. (laughs) If you think about it, from the moment you wake up, you know, we used to listen to the radio, now we listen to to a radio on the internet. We used to use an alarm clock, now the alarm clock is our iPad. Alexis and I both like record players, but apart from that, that's the only thing we'll say. Maybe that's coming back, but the the point being that everything is run by the internet. Yeah, and that's not good or bad. It, it, it's just it's, it's the reality, and of course, our lives, which are so digital, and then are subject to these, uh, let's say, observations by the mere use of, techno- of technology, and that in itself is testing. But it's not just because that's happening, again, at a global scale, it's happening at a massive scale, and it's just, um, it's part of the new, I don't know, age in which we, in, in which human humankind is. Right. And therefore, uh, these, fundam- these issues about privacy, which are very philosophical and very much to do with the way in which Humanity needs to to operate to to be the way we are um, is tested by the fact that life is changing and technology is basically all over all all around us. 
Yeah, it's fascinating if you think about it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's many angles on this idea of the age of privacy, but one that I, when you're, when you're speaking, that occurs to me is that, as you said, every aspect of life seems to be now um, underpinned by technology. So whether you're talking about your career or you're talking about your, you know, whatever your um, family life, your hobbies, your interests, there's this foundation, which is the way you interact with every sphere of life, is technology. And as you said, that's recorded in you know, whatever way um, all the time. So the relationship between us and those different spheres of our lives has to um, relate very strongly to privacy because, you know, that's otherwise um, the technology would be um, too much, if you like. So I think when I think of how the privacy world has changed in the last 10 years, I think the pe- people who are not in this community and not thinking about these issues for their jobs are thinking about privacy a, a huge amount more than they were 10, 15 years ago because their lives are so dependent on on technology enabling them to do what they want to do. And so, yeah, I think privacy might not be the first thing on everybody's lips still, hmm. but it's there. Do you know what I mean? It's there in every conversation. Yeah, and ultimately, whether we call it uh, privacy or not or, or whatever, the reality is that Human nature is human nature. And we, we want, of course we want privacy. Of course we want to be able to express freely. Of course we don't like to be observed. And we need that. And that's not really going to change. In that sense, to say that privacy is dead is, is, is nonsensical because it's part of who we are as humans, right? right? Yeah. And therefore, it's, just, it's, it's never going to disappear. It will evolve, and we need to see how we can protect it so that we are not exposed to others, but at the same time, as a, as a human need, it will continue to exist. That's what I think, but I don't know. Maybe we're getting too philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's probably bring it back down a little bit to, um, you know, we talked about the decision. You know, you mentioned a little bit about what you thought, you know, it represented. You know, it's a very symbolic uh, step taken by Canil in terms of, uh, you know, the subject matter, it taking a move in this respect in terms of enforcement. You know, I think um, we're coming up to that stage where actually it's almost May again. It's almost a year, which means that we've we've had a year's worth of operation of the European Data Protection Board that we uh, spoke about uh, recently with the ICO as well. You know, I mean, they've been exceedingly busy um i guess you know what would be uh great to hear from your perspective eduardo is how you've seen that transition from you know the wp29 that was set up under the directive to be that kind of advisory body um to provide their opinions on various subject matter and how they in fact took that role themselves and transitioned into the edpb that we find themselves with today um and, well, let's start there. Yeah, I think, let, let me put it this way. I think the EDPB is the closest you can get today to a single pan-European data protection regulator. Right. I think when the European Commission 
a few years ago was in the process of rethinking the legislative framework and they thought okay let's have a new a new framework and one question was do we have a new directive or do we have a regulation and Today, we, everybody talks about the GDPR and this regulation, but there was a time where the fact that it was a regulation instead of, instead of a new directive, that was super revolutionary. Right. Okay. So we have a regulation, and it's clearly a much more effective way of harmonizing the law at a pan-European level. On the regulator point of view, on the, in terms of the enforcement, I think it was probably a step too far for the European Commission or the legislative bodies to say, okay, let's just get rid of all the data protection authorities and create a, a new regulator, a new single data protection regulator. That, that you, Europe is so diverse and the way in which the law is enforced at the national level is such that it would have been almost too, too radical. Okay, so as a compromise, if you want, between what I think the European Commission really wanted, which was the maximum degree of harmonization, and what was realistic, the EDPB was created. And the EDPB, as a concept, is that. What happens to it is, will be what the data protection authorities make of it. Right. You see what I mean? And I think that is where we are today. And uh, my mm, view is that as years go by, the EDPB will operate in a more harmonized and, and a more um, uh, sort of consolidated fashion every, every year, year on year. And it started already right, in, in that way. It. So there is already, I think... Uh, a noticeable difference in the way in which the EDPB is behaving from uh, the way in which the Article 29 Working Party was, was behaving. And it's, it's, it's kind of subtle in a way because you know, both bodies had guidelines mm-hmm. on both bodies used to meet in Brussels every X for a couple of days. And so in a sense, the, the working practice haven't changed probably that much. Mm-hmm. But the way in which they are, uh, the EDPB is operating, I can see, is going in the direction of a single regulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may take years, mm-hmm. but it's definitely going in that direction. And what do you think, Alexis, about you know, some of the guidance that the EDPB has put out so far? And how have you received it yourself, and how do you think it's been received in, uh, in the last, what, nearly a year? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely been something, I mean... I don't think anybody would uh, say that they're not looking for guidance. Um, it's one of the questions we sure. always get. Uh, you know, clients, you know, are really keen to see what the European Data Protection Board has to say on certain uh, subject matter. I guess, you know, a few pieces of guidance maybe could have come in a bit sooner. I don't think anybody would have uh, said no to guidelines a little bit sooner, but it is what it is. There's a a lot of things that were happening. Um, I think one of the big pieces of guidance that we've seen come out so far um, most recently has been on the territorial scope. 
um, draft guidance so far. I think that was a big question for probably you know a lot of clients coming to you, Eduardo, and asking uh, about the extent of how somebody could, how an organization could be caught by the regulation. So I think that was quite welcome to see, um, and you know I think. Um, more guidelines will be welcome in the future. Um, I mean, they're doing things on certification, on codes of conduct. Um, they're, they've been quite busy. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they will continue to be. I mean, but that, that one you're referring to was, I think, a very important piece of guidance. Because it's probably the number one question that the law apply to me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So from that perspective, it was important. And it's interesting the role that the regulatory guidance plays in the sense of the law is the law. The law is written, passed by the legislative authorities and and interpreted by courts. So that's the legal framework. But the contribution that regulators make through guidance is actually really important particularly when the law is so complex. The, the law is complex because uh, it relies on principles, it uses uh, concepts that are difficult to interpret, and of course courts take their time in, in issuing their decisions and all that. So the law, in a sense, from a um, legislative and judicial perspective, evolves relatively slowly. But regulators can do that much faster because you know these guys are meeting in Brussels every month or every couple of months. So of course they and they've got lots of people working on interpreting the law. Right. So suddenly you have a law that is written, which is then interpreted in a lot of detail. And you know, these guidelines they are like 10, 15, 20 pages long, just interpreting one article. You know, and therefore they provide a lot of information. But of course, even the guidance can be interpreted, right. and that's that's the nature of of the law in a sense. You know, it's not mathematics; it's, it's law, and it has to be interpreted in the context of its particular uh, case and, and situation. But on the whole, the role of the EDPB guidelines and, and any other, I mean, and indeed the, the National Data Protection Authority's guidance is very important because it, if anything, if anything, whether they get it right or wrong, to be honest, it tells us what the regulators think. So from the point of view of compliance, companies may say, well, I disagree with that interpretation of the law. And because they are not a court, they may not actually even get it right. But at the very least, whether they, you disagree or not with them, you know what they think. And in terms of your compliance decisions, you can see what, in which direction, direction you need to go if you want to meet the regulator's expectations. And from that perspective, it's obviously very helpful and very influential. Right. 
And just going back, you know, a couple of years ago, I mean, thinking, I mean, that's, you know, some of the most recent guidelines that they've issued. If we think about some of the, the guidelines that the WP29 was issuing, even before it became the EDPD, were on, you know, things like DPOs, but also, you know, importantly, identifying a lead supervisory authority, you know, which kind of brings back, you know, that question of consistency of this idea of, the one-stop shop um, that's, you know, been in existence, I guess, for the last, you know, uh, 10 months. What what can you tell us about the state of play with that part of the role of the EDPD? So possibly one of the biggest practical changes brought about by the GDPR is precisely the one-stop shop. I think that from a business perspective, I mean, I see a lot from the side of the business. And the businesses and the, the companies that we work with are very, very interested in understanding and benefiting from the one-stop shop system, which is great from their perspective because they are looking at this and saying, okay, well, it's great we have a regulation now. Well, it may be difficult or, or to comply with, but at least we know the law is the same or right. r- roughly uh, the same across the EU. But from the point of view of the regulatory activity, we don't want to have one law that is interpreted in 28 or soon to be 27 um, different ways. So if there is one way in which it can be interpreted and there is one regulator with which I can interact in my use of data and, and my um, again, uh, regulatory interaction, then is is much better. But of course, there are some rules, complex rules, right. in terms of determining which one is your main establishment. Multinationals sometimes don't think along those lines. Multinationals mm-hmm. are thinking about okay, markets. My market in this jurisdiction, my market there, sure. and, and and they grow. In, in different ways, sometimes organically, sometimes they, they make acquisitions. So it's very difficult in, a, in the real world to say, oh, my main establishment is in this particular jurisdiction because you may have important people everywhere, right? right? And who is your main establishment? Where are you the main decision makers? They are everywhere. Yeah. The, the, you know, it's, it's globalization uh, happens that way. And therefore, the, the one-stop shop that relies heavily on this concept of the main establishment can be difficult to apply in practice. And it will, is again, one of these things that over the next few years, we will see how it works. But my perception of it is that it is already working and regulators are, may, are keen to make it work and data protection authorities are, are willing to defend this whole idea of the lead authority and to accept it as, a, as an effective way of doing the job. And if you just put that into context, with the Google decision, um, so obviously the, the enforcing authority was the Keneal, um, how did that work in terms of the one-stop shop? How do you think, do you think that's a good example of the one-stop shop working in practice or obviously with Ireland... <laughs> Well, if anything, is is an example of one-stop shop, perhaps not wor- sure. not working. Uh, at least that's what uh, Google would say. But <laughs> the no, but the, the the point here is that if anything, it shows how difficult this is, and the yeah. fact that this is being tested right right here, right now. Yeah. And I can see 
that arguments come, I mean, the Canille is making the argument, well, you don't, re, you don't have your main establishment where you say you have it and therefore we're competent, or at least you didn't have it at the time when we started the investigation. And, but that is, of course, the, the subject of the dispute. One, mm. and, and it, it illustrates that the law in this area is still settling mm. and will not settle for, for quite some time. Mm. And uh, without getting into the specifics of, of, of that case, yeah. I think the reality is that for organizations that are global organizations operating across the EU, the opportunity is there to benefit from the one-stop shop. But in order, the main message that I get, I am getting from the reactions I'm seeing from regulators, and not just the Canil, but every everyone else, is that you need to invest. As an organization, it's really important to invest into this idea. And by investing, I mean by making sure that you make yourself accountable to that lead authority. Because the more accountable you are to that lead authority, the more difficult it becomes to challenge that. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps uh, where, they can, where they, the, the, the main argument, is maybe, I don't know if it's a legal argument or a practical argument, the main argument that the Canil seem to be making is, well, if you don't invest enough in, in, in that relationship with that other lead authority, then it's open season for for everyone else and i think uh, everyone needs to get to to a point where there's an agreement as to that level of again investment in, in inverted commons that one a company needs to make in order to show that there is a main establishment that selects that that lead authority in that jurisdiction and that's, that's a whole new question to think about you know for people managing a privacy program it's not just how do i select my lead authority it's how do i make the right kind of investment and make the right kind of evidence building and to, you know, in the case of having to prove it, you can, there's a whole new way of working, I guess. It is a whole new way of working, which, as I said, hasn't settled yet. Yeah. So we are asked all the time, how do I prove that I have my main establishment in this country? Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, and for example, the, uh, the regulators and, the, the working party, in fact, before the before it became the EDPB, issued guidance on that. So that's one helpful source of reference that mm-hmm. tells you what regulators are thinking as to how you prove that. So, so it's, all it's there. work in practice. <laughs> it's, it's all, all there. there if you read it. I mean, in a sense, it's all there. And it's there and no, and nowhere. <laughs> okay. So I mean, uh, having a look at my watch, I know we're running out of time. Uh, Let's open it. I mean, we focus quite a lot on uh, a lot of the uh, European developments. We've talked through uh, enforcement. We've talked about this new age that we find ourselves in the EDPB. Let's have a look outside um, and I guess cross the pond to the US where there is an equally huge conversation happening right now um, regarding privacy, both at the state level and at the federal level. I guess that conversation at the federal level has been going on for quite some time, Um, but you know, maybe there's a renewed momentum behind it. You know, is that um, as a result of the CCPA coming in? You know, we're starting to see Washington um, 
passing a, a privacy bill through uh, their state legislature as well. There seems to be something different this time around um, regarding the conversation. Um, how how are you, how is the firm seeing it in this perspective? Yeah, it's it's also fascinating what is happening in the U.S. on this front because I remember again, years ago, decades ago, when I was starting in, in this area, that there were some attempts uh, at a federal level to kind of regulate the Internet uh, right. in the U.S., and all of those failed for years and years and years and years and years. And the fact that here we are, all these years later, now at a federal level having hearings about the importance of federal privacy regulation and people saying it's not a matter of if it's a matter of what should be. And of course, California is a big driver in, right. in that. And, and I think CCPA has been a real trigger in terms of that debate. Not the only trigger is these things that we were talking about earlier, about this age of privacy and, and the, 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 the fact that this matters to people and the fact that there is a, a growing public debate around the importance of preserving people's privacy and, and making it compatible with the digital economy. Right. It is that debate that has triggered this sort of uh, new momentum, as you were, you were saying, as you were saying, to perhaps regulate or, or to adopt a regulatory framework that so far has not existed in, in the U.S. in this, in this area. It's, Difficult to tell, you know, no, you can speculate as to what's going to happen when, but it's visible what is going on, that's right. for sure. But what we do know is there is the CCPA, that that has happened, that is clear. You know, there was a lot of talk it, uh, when it was starting to be passed and the conversation started um, with the ballot initiatives, etc. You know, and then we ended out with the CCPA framework, obviously with amendments to come, with AG uh, guidance to be issued. Some of the conversation is still to be determined around what exactly that final framework is going to look like but obviously the the question arose as to okay well the ccpa is there how much does it look like the gdpr <laughs> um and you know how do we i guess from an uh, from the questions that we got from our organizations obviously the, the timing of it was probably crucial in terms of you know happening at the same time as the entry into effect of the gdpr so all those compliance efforts the organizations were just going through um, in terms of the GDPR. Now they saw this, you know, massive piece of legislation come through California, you know, top five uh, economies in the world. So how do we look to, I guess, utilize all of those efforts that we've just been adopting with the GDPR to see how we can not duplicate sure. the CCPA. And we, yeah, and we, and we must. We must take advantage of those efforts. I mean, this shows how global this issue is. And it's interesting that last year we were saying, well, the GDPR is a, a de facto global framework. And many organizations that we work with have set up privacy compliance, global privacy compliance programs, which are very much based on GDPR compliance. And traditionally, this idea that if you comply with EU law, 
then you comply with any other laws in this area in, in the world, then has, that's been a, a relatively good rule of thumb. But California kind of shakes that up a little bit because here we have an important jurisdiction which is powerful and, and leading in this area, which is the home of the digital economy at the same time, which makes it even more uh, exciting, I guess. But that is looking at privacy from a slightly different angle. Right. And yes, there are similarities. Of course, there are similarities with the ways in which the GDPR looks at these issues and, and, uh, and the way in which the CCPA uh, is going to regulate this area. And of course, the, the techno- tectonic plates of this CCPA are still moving and we don't know what's going to look like. But what we have is a situation where we have an important jurisdiction in the world with a new law that is going to be very influential and organizations are going to have to reconcile their compliance efforts at a global level, whether they are based on GDPR or not, with the CCPA. And then what that becomes is a very important strategic decision of how to devote resources, what resources, what decisions uh, you make in terms of the building blocks of your compliance program. And it just shows how strategic this area has become from a business perspective. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about, um, as you say, what are people thinking outside of the European perspective? And I think it's kind of lazy, but also quite unuseful to think in terms of a GDPR style of regulation and a non-GDPR, kind of a binary thing. I mean, what I would say is a couple of years ago, people probably would have said, yeah, age of privacy, maybe I'll go along with that. But really, it's an age of European privacy. But today, that's so much more diverse. So we're starting to see the cusp of where it becomes very complex and very diverse. And so the GDPR perhaps uh, was intended to simplify or sort of harmonize European privacy, but we're seeing, well, maybe not an explosion yet, but the start of um, lots of different things happening in very different ways all over the world. What's, what's apart from CCPA, what, what are some of the things you have seen outside of, sort of outside of Europe that you think, well, that's fundamentally different to GDPR or... So, obviously, the world is bigger than Europe, uh, uh, apparently. And, um, and of course, the, the world is very different from Europe. Yeah. And you've got completely different cultures in terms of their society, their uh, legal frameworks that are looking at these issues from their perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, technology is developing in the same way all over the world. And the value of data, again, is something that is happening all over the world. But then if you try to address those issues from a a public policy perspective, you need to filter them through the legal cultures of those countries and those jurisdictions where things are happening. So Asia, for example, is, if we think Europe is diverse, Asia is much more diverse than Europe. And you, right, you can't sure. say, oh, there is an Asian uh, data protection law emerging. No, you have the sort of the Korean approach, the Japanese approach, the Vietnam approach, mm-hmm. the uh, Philippines approach. And you need to make sense of all, all that. And you see very progressive ways of dealing with data protection and, and privacy issues. And you can obviously learn from everything. And 
but that highlights the point I was making earlier that if you have powerful countries in the world, I mean, obviously some of them may have had data protection laws for a while, like Japan, but others that are creating new laws from Brazil to India to China, sure. that throws a whole range of um, uh, issues in terms of how you go and, and operate at that global scale while trying to while trying to meet all these requirements that we don't really understand and we don't know at what speed they are progressing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a challenge. I guess it's good for for us, for our businesses, and all that. But the reality is that it needs to be looked at in that holistic way. And obviously, even though I'm based. In, in Europe, I'm very aware of the fact that the, the world is much larger and in this area is certainly global and you need to be looking at how this uh, area of law and this area of practice is evolving everywhere. Yeah, I mean, we're working on these issues when they come up, right? And it's it's certainly not um, anything to do with us, but it's, it's becoming a lot more complex. I mean, Lexis, you, you guys have been working on some really interesting stuff recently, uh, not least on Brazil, like you're saying, Eduardo, and India, but also um, Nigeria recently. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about that and what what things have caught your eye. Yeah, I mean, I think as you say, uh, you know, Nigeria has been one of the uh, more recent developments in adopting their own uh, new regulation, uh, as as they term it. Um, there are things happening all over Africa, in fact, um, in the Middle East as well. Um, we're starting to see, uh, you know, not just um, uh, countries that we, we would expect, but new countries coming through. And, you know, I think for us, it's it's just daily um, change yeah. that we're, we're always... Yeah. That, con- that speed that you were referring to, Eduardo, is... We just don't know when it's going to happen, but it just continues to keep happening. The pace seems to have really uh, increased over the last couple of years, um, and we're starting to see frameworks emerging all over the place. And for organizations, you know, that's the that's the tricky thing is, you know, well, you know, this framework happens to define personal data in this way. You know, I mean, let's just take it back to the real basic concepts of you know, what, what is personal data under this law? You know, mm-hmm. are we covered by it? Are we, are we a controller? Are we a, pros, uh, a processor, a personal information handler, a uh, processing agent? <laughs> you know, what does that mean for us and our operations within mm-hmm. that jurisdiction? And how do we say, you know, okay, well, that's, that's not a jurisdiction that you, even we might not operate in at the moment, but, you know, we were looking at uh, expanding to. So, you know, I think that that conversation at the moment regarding new frameworks and legislations emerging is really, really important um, and really exciting right now. So, yeah, it's a, it's a new age. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Okay, great. So I think we're going to wrap up. That's been a great chat. Thanks very much for uh, company and I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. This has been... Like just to recap, it's the first episode of that privacy podcast. Uh, we're going to do these really regularly. We're going to um, have loads of conversations on the go. Um, by the time you listen to us to this, as we said, we're going to be quite a few steps forward within Brexit, or maybe quite a few steps sideways. We we shall see. <laughs> so um, yeah, listen, this is going to be the case. Every time we're going to do this podcast, we're going to have a new set of issues to work through and just really think about in a kind of way that's relevant to um, our lives as well as our, our work and just the way our 
our, um, our legal frameworks are changing. So thanks very much, Eduardo. That's awesome. Thanks very much for having us here Thank in this you. lovely office. And thanks very much, Alexis. Thank you. And we shall hopefully speak to you very soon. Excellent. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by Data Guidance by OneTrust in association with Hogan Lovells.